Hey, Julia. Hey, Tim. Who are we talking to today? We are talking to Michael Jackson. What? Michael R. Jackson. He is a musical theater writer, and for my money, his songs are even better than that Michael Jackson's. <laughs> I agree. Here he is. Yeah, I've had a lot of experiences lately. Oh, yeah? So let's see. So I was tracking carefully you arts because I was hearing about that. Right, right, is right. What other stuff is like making you busy and crazed right now? Um, uh, Strange Loop is not making me crazy and busy, but it's like it's slowly looming. building up to. Can getting we right. hear this, like the origin story of how that came to be? Of how it came to be at Playwrights or how it came to be a piece? I'm interested in both, actually. Me too. Yeah, sure. Um, well, A Strange Loop started off as a monologue that I wrote after I graduated from college. Though at that time, it was not called A Strange Loop. It was a, just a, literally just a monologue. It was even before I even was writing music because um, I went to NYU for playwriting for undergrad. And um, so I like graduated a semester earlier than I had intended to. And I was like, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So I started writing this monologue that was just about me sort of walking around New York and thinking about a lot of things. And, um, and then that monologue got performed in this youth theater festival called uh, Rebel Verses, which was at Center Stage in New York, which is, doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, uh, I, uh, after that, I did go to grad school, and I was in the program as a lyricist and book writer. And I went into the program not knowing how to write lyrics. So I learned how to write lyrics over the first year, and by the end of that first year, um, a teacher had said, if you're a lyricist who's never written music and you want to try it for this one assignment, it was Mike Reed who gave us this assignment, uh, go for it and then I was like all right well I'd taken piano all of my like childhood life and through high school and I used to try to write music when I was a kid but I didn't know how to write lyrics at the time so by the time I learned how to write lyrics musical ideas had somewhere to go so I decided to try writing my own song just for the assignment and so I wrote the song memory song which was like the first song I'd ever written and it just was a standalone song at that time but it ended up becoming later years later a part of what would come to be a strange loop so so I was on, so people liked the song in my class i was encouraged to keep writing music even though for my thesis i was going to be the words person with my collaborator rachel and you wrote only children and i wrote my favorites right i wrote a musical called only children with my collaborator rachel peters um and then we had our own little adventures with that and but then i was still just writing music on the side for myself I would gradually show music to people. They would say they'd like it. Um, eventually, Ira Weitzman came to hear some of it, and he and I started meeting just to talk about, you know, what I was doing. And then he asked me if I, um, how was I writing any of the music down? And I said, I'm not writing any of it down. And he was like, oh. well, you have to write it down. And I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. So he gave me a copy of Finale 2006, and then I began the painful task of trying to teach myself how to notate music. 
So then I started doing that. I would show my scores to friends, composer friends. They would be like, it's terrible. <laughs> and one of them, Will Aronson, uh-huh. <laughs> gave me like my first uh, finale lesson or, or notation lesson. Mm-hmm. And about how to just basic little things about like subdividing the bar and that sort of stuff. And um, so then I s- kept doing that. I got a, I got as good as I could get with it. And then I met um, this guy named Adam Wiggins who was like, I love, I'm a copyist, I'm MD, like I love doing that stuff. And I was like, great. And so we sort of began a collaboration where I get it as, I get it down to how I want it with whether the piano part is or and the the vocal lines and all that stuff i the lyrics in there i i get it to as good as i can get it and then i normally hand it off to him and he like cleans it up and that just has been like a really a like a weight off my shoulders because i just am not that i don't care that much about what it looks like that's um, amazing. I want that in my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, it it works. I think I think you'd have to ask him, um, but I think it works out well for both of us. Um, you know, so uh, so I then got an opportunity with this director to um, present the monologue at Ars Nova in like 2006. And at that point I had started writing a bunch of songs. And so we started to try to see, could the songs and the the monologue go together? Because the monologue was very personal, the songs were very personal. So we started sort of putting them together and it, at that, and it turned into this one man show that I did at Ars Nova in like 2006, I think. So you performed it yourself? I performed it myself at Ars Nova. Um, a, like 12 people were there. Two of them walked out. No. Um, Eric Day played guitar for me. Um, and then from there, me and the director continued working on it. The piece took on a, started to take on a more formal musical shape because I did not want it to be a one-man show. I was, it wasn't like something that – I knew it was going to be personal, but like I didn't want it to be like about me in a, a, a specific – in an explicit sense. So we started developing it. It, it took on the title of Strange Loop. Um, Where did that title come from? So this is so funny. Like, so the title of Strange Loop initially came from the I, the fact that in the piece, this is something uh, uh, an element that has come in and out of the piece, but is currently still in. Um, I'm like a huge fan of Liz Fair, mm, and. Like her, in particular, her first album, Exile in Guyville. And in the piece, the character, the main character, Usher, in my musical, is really into her and is like trying to get her attention and trying to sort of write responses to her songs, Exile in Guyville, the way that she wrote responses to Exile in Main Street for the Rolling Stones. And He's, he writes a bunch of these mashups. This is an early version. Um, he writes uh, these mashups of a bunch of her songs or responses to her songs that then culminate in her responding back to him to be like, you cannot use my music, but <laughs> using her music to do that. So there's this one particular song of hers on that album that I've always loved called Strange Loop. And I never knew, and the, the title, it does, the word Strange Loop does not appear anywhere in the song. It's just the title of it. Mm-hmm. And I always loved the song, but I did not know what it meant. And so one day, just on a whim, I decided to just Google Strange Loop to see if like, it was a reference to something. And what it turned out to be a reference to was this um, concept by this 
uh, cognitive scientist named Douglas Hofstadter, who wrote this book called Gudel Exer Bach, like in 19, in the 70s, that was, I don't and I never read that book, but then he also wrote this other book years later called I Am a Strange Loop. And the, con, the, the very shallow description of the concept of it is that there are certain um, systems in nature and mathematics that can only be defined by referring back to themselves to complete sort of to define what they are and he sort of extrapolates from that to talk about the notion of a self that that one's i that one's conception of a self of like of reality is based only on their own perception of what is happening and the funny thing about that was that was ultimately what the piece was about without me even knowing what it was <laughs> and i was just like and and the song the liz fair song sort of once i understood that concept and i could suddenly see what the what the what the song was really about and why it was called that like it just it just felt eerily like the piece was like uh, it was like some cosmic yeah thing was coming together to make it to help me understand what the piece was about because yeah. it was so much about this character trying to understand who he was in the moment and like really trying to like these these uh, layers of his perception of what was happening to his life just kept circling back in on themselves and he kept being like I want to change I want to change I want to change and by the end of the piece he basically realizes like I don't need to change and in that moment he changes which mm. to me is a version of a strange loop mm. and like so that that's really where the title came out of like it was like a total accident and yet it was like this weird serendipity yeah, yeah. thing that happened so um so going back <laughs> to the story <laughs> uh so I did the one then show then we started developing it at the playwrights realm um, in the early, early days of the Playwrights Round, who did The Wolves, if anybody mm-hmm. has seen that. Um, I think I, I think I might have been, like, literally in the first or second year of development, like, of their existence, of doing stuff there. And um, we worked on the piece and a lot of dramaturgy, a lot of dramaturgy. And then we did a book-only reading, which at that time, the piece uh, had... Uh, cis man, men and women in it and then like i wrote some more songs and i did like a concert at the john denzarzik mm-hmm. broadway next the lincoln center lincoln center next, library yeah yeah next wade broadway whatever thing did you ace your interviews oh yeah i like totally ran circles around him but like <laughs> um because i knew going in what he was like and i was just like i'm not gonna stand for that so uh I uh, did like songs there and then I had an opportunity to just do a reading at NYU. Oh, and so in between that, then after all of that, I did another reading at the Lark with Maya Dralis and then she got too busy and then Stephen Brackett was a- around and he had directed uh, a concert of mine at Joe's Pub. And so I was like, why don't we just see what happens with this? And he was the one who suggested what if we cast this piece with all black queer men at that time? And once he suggested that, that just sort of unlocked something for me Mm -hmm. and like what I was writing about and what I was trying to get at. And so we did a little reading at NYU in 2012. Um, 
with a group of people that I that we found um uh and then we did that and then like after that uh the piece sort of went under my bed for two uh-huh. years and then Shakina Nathak was starting MTF and she said um hey we're starting this starting this thing we're gonna have a writer's group Do you want to be part of the inaugural writer's group and I was like yeah I have this piece that I've been working on for like a long time um I can bring that in. So then I brought that in to the writers group. We did a little work on it. And then she said, well, I think what you need is to just put this up in front of people. So then Stephen was available. So we, again, I cast the piece again and we did a reading at MTF in 2014 and the original MTF space. And then that went over really well. And then I just like kept working on it. And then I just, got a bunch of opportunities to I got to go to Goodspeed to the Johnny Mercer Foundation residency and then they invited me back to like their um they had like a not a gala but like they had like a thing at 54 below that I presented mm-hmm. some of the songs there and and just gradually over time I got to do it again I got to do another reading at NTF and then um Kent Nicholson invited me to do a reading at Playwrights on November 11, 2016 and when that happened, was it? Did you have a stirring of like this could be happening? So at that time, it was exciting that I was able to get a reading in front of Tim Sanford at Players Horizons, but I did not know what was going to happen. And that was the, also the week of and it was Trump's the election. election, and everybody was like oh, freaked God. out. Yeah. So, but it actually, I think that that actually the timing could not have been more perfect yeah. because everybody was like like the feeling in the obviously on the street was like so dark and in the room was like even darker Mm -hmm. and this piece is like in so many ways not about like it is both not about any of that but it's also like all about that because it's about this person who is very marginalized within even his own category um realize coming to realize that like he is sort of okay and that he can sort of he's stronger than all of that and i think that like it was actually really powerful for people particularly white people to see that yeah that like if this person who is like particularly like at a disadvantage can like come out on the other side of of like a marginalization still kind of like stronger then like we have no reason to be like crying and weeping and running our garments. That's my <laughs> own take on it. I you'd have to ask other people who were there how they felt about it. But I it just I just remember it it felt like a really real and powerful moment in the room after the reading that like people were like, Oh, we didn't just come on this like gloomy host selection day to like just a humdrum, you know, happy go lucky musical. It was like about like something mm-hmm. kind of hard hitting. I think that was meaningful for people. That's my take on it. So then after that, Playwrights was still, was like into it, but like not sure. So like, you know, but I got a producer out of it um, who was one of the people who came to see it. This um, amazing woman named Barbara Whitman, who's one of the producers on Fun Home. She said the piece freaked her out and challenged her, but she like felt called to try to help it find a home somewhere. So we sort of began the task of like just sort of seeing if we could generate interest or whatever. And then we decided that we needed, we did, um, Stephen and I were doing some more work on the piece and we decided to um, 
Then we're going to do another sort of industry reading, which happened a little less than a year later. And then we did that. And then from that, like we got some interest from some theaters and that was when like playwrights like decided to come on. So it was, it was great. Like it's, it's been like a real whirlwind. Like it's been such an, like an up and down twisty path that started almost 15 years ago. I was thinking so, it must be so crazy developing a show that it does have this strong autobiographical thing over yeah, yeah. 15 years of your own life. Right. But like the other interesting piece of that is that like the further I've gotten away from the origin, the piece, I started the piece very autobiographically when I was 23 years old. Yeah. And, but the further I got away from that, the more it became not about me. Like it, I certainly drew from my own experience in order to write the piece because the piece is about se- a, a self and myself is the only self I've got in order to talk about this experience mm-hmm. of that. But like, I just found that like, I think I actually couldn't really write the piece until I got some objectivity from it. And I just, ha- but I had to do it from the point that I started. Um, and so like, so the autobiography aspect of it isn't even something that like, I think is necessarily all that important at this point because I, I'd like fictionalized so much of it yeah. and like made it into like, just a t- another experience unto itself, you know, yeah. that's both personal, but also a character. Have you had consistently one person play that lead track or have you worked with a whole bunch of people? Um, to this. So technically, Oh wait, and I forgot to, I left out the part where we did a big 54 below concert, which was before both of the, the playwrights readings. So, um, in the playwrights, in the 54, in the first reading we did in 2012, we had one person play it. And that was when Stephen and I learned that what was, one thing that was really important to the piece was um, body diversity. Mm-hmm. And that the lead character cannot be played by somebody who's an Instagram thought or <laughs> a thirst trap. Like that, 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 that actually, that's like, not telling the story that's leaving out of such an important part of the story mm. and then after that we used the same person for our readings but then when we did the 54 below concert just because it was a concert version and not like a reading we decided to try um cat doing it where we took all of the songs for the most part and had a different person a different queer black um, can man play the lead part of Usher to just sort of show a rainbow of bodies and types and sizes and presentations and all that. And that ended up being really, really cool just just to see because yeah. the piece is so much about that anyway, about these different queer bodies on stage. Um, and then for the the last, we did, so we did two readings and then we did a like a movement sort of, workshop kind of thing where we we brought in and then we had a different lead for that because the person who normally played the lead was not available Mm -hmm. so that was actually really interesting because like we had been with the same by that point we'd been basically had been with the same people for the last like three years yeah 
and so we just got to try another person and then he was really great so like it, it's been like that that the casting of this is like a is like a really you know an interesting whole other piece of it so yeah i think that's really cool the idea of that the physicality of the actor actually is a part of the story. Oh, yeah. But discovering that not in a way that, like, you know, title page that you'd necessarily written in. Right. But I mean, but now it's going to be on the title page. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's actually like it. It's so dis- it's so distracting, like huh. in every way, because you don't believe it. You right. don't believe like you don't believe that the things that I have the character going through. You don't believe it if you have like the wrong body type on stage doing it. I'm always surprised that movies aren't better at that by now. It's horrible. It makes me like angrier than anything. Because like, especially like with a lot of queer stories, like the, these people will be put on stage, put on the screen. And I'm like asked to like empathize with them around certain issues. Of, and I'm like, you don't have any problems dating <laughs> like at all. So like get out of my face with that. Um, I want to, can I, Ooh, can we circle back to uh, something you said about writing music? Like, I didn't realize that you came very much like words first and music was sort of a, a secondary or, you know, it wasn't the first thing that you well, gravitated towards. Well, it was actually, I I mean, I've been involved with music since I was a little kid, uh-huh. but I wasn't composing. composing. Pers- I wasn't composing technically. Yeah. Well, because like, all right, so I... The reason why I started playing piano when I was about eight years old, uh-huh. and old Mister <laughs> right? Well, that was bef- that was later. Oh, okay. So my dad knew this woman. My dad was a police officer, and one of his subordinates was he, he had he had done some favor for her. Something that happened where he was like, "I want to pay you back for whatever it was what you've done for me." And he said, "Oh, well, my sons, you could teach them piano lessons because he knew that she played piano at." her church and so we started going to her for piano lessons which i didn't like at first but i got into it later and so i learned how to and she taught me how to play piano primarily by ear first and so and then like i was playing and then um at church they started letting me play for like the congregation and then later for like the choirs and so i grew up playing for like the children's choir and then for a brief period for the old lady choir and um, part of what happens when you're playing for, uh, particularly at Baptist church, is that it's a lot of improvisation mm. and like making things up and like, you know, listening and then like figuring out what key they're singing in and then playing it or whatever. And so I always say that like I, my compositional style actually came out of that ah. because I spent all of my middle school and teen years at a at a piano like playing live for like a a congregation that wasn't really trained to sing and i had to like constantly make things up and so like i would go home and i would like just play for hours and play for hours and i would make up little tunes that had no words to them and so it so then again like when i finally got to grad school and learned how to actually write like about song form learn learn song form mm-hmm. the musical ideas that i had been just messing around with for years and years and years and years had like i could put a form to it and that was actually really cool because like my style wasn't and i also and and i also i forgot to mention as you alluded to earlier i so i was with that woman 
until about high school. And then I started going to a classical teacher for piano for a couple of years. And I was, I think by that point I was like, because I, I w- didn't grow up like playing my scales and doing all mm-hmm. that stuff as really rigorously. I was never particularly good at classical piano. And to this day, like if you put a piece of heat music in front of me and ask me to play it, I could like slowly kind of tink- like plunk through it. Mm-hmm. But like, I will never be like great pianist in that way. And I would never be anybody's music director or anything like that. So, uh, but like, uh, but having learned the song form in grad school, it just it it w- allowed me like it like unlocked it was like it like unlocked the door where I could start to really sort of put songs together in a way um, that made sense to me and that I was interested in. Cool. And I didn't have like a, and I had no composition specific composition background. So for me, it was just. I always think of it kind of like finger painting. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, I'm like, does it sound good? Oh, what is it like to go from this change to that change? But I don't know what the chords are always. Mm-hmm. So like, it's not like I have like a formal sense of how it should go. I just sort of follow. It's like story. It's all storytelling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because I've spent, you know, three and a half years studying playwriting and then like musical theater writing after that, like, I feel like, I always feel like I'm a com- I'm a playwright who thinks I'm a composer who thinks like a playwright, mm-hmm. mm. and that's sort of how I think of everything that I write musically, at least. Cool. I just like from where I'm sitting, you like I know that you write with other collaborators sometimes, like right. Anna, yeah. or you also just do everything by yourself. Yeah, and so it sort of it, depends on this what is needed. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm curious about. Um, uh, that's why I was curious to hear about where the music came in for you because I know you do just words with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, can we, while we're looping back to things, although not strangely, can we talk a little bit about Only Children? Oh, sure. I sure, love sure. that show mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Only Children was something that came about as my thesis project while I was in grad school because... Um, my collaborator, Rachel Peters, the great Rachel Peters, um, had read this article. Maybe it was in the New York Times. It might have been like the New Yorker, something like that. I think it was the Times about a then seeming trend that was being noticed about uh, affluent preteen girls uh, turning tricks at the Mall of America in huh. 2005. Or four and we were interested in like we just thought that was an interesting topic and then we also had like read spring awakening mm-hmm. the frank vatican play and we started to think about what if we did an adaptation of the vatican that sort of was about the sort of mirror opposite of what it it's it, like uh, the Vatican play is so much about like the sexual repression of youth and what mm-hmm. happens. And we wanted to go, what happens if you talk about like, the, the sort of hyper sexual mm. nature of the present day of youth. And so we just started putting those two things together in like a present day version of it. And uh, that was like, an, that piece like was really like challenging at that time. Like it's so funny. I think of like if we were working on it now, people would be like, "Yawn, boring," because like 
like we're so beyond that in so <laughs> many ways um and talking about some of at least some of those issues i still think the capitalism part of it we're not ahead of that at all mm-hmm. but that's another story for another time um so we did that as our thesis project it took on a lot of different forms there's a lot of surreal things that were in it that went in and out of it and then we did our thesis reading and then we did the dixon place not for broadway series right after that and then we did the lincoln center director's lab and then we got a production at nyu's main stage for the undergrad students which is similar to what i did at uarts and that was really 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 exciting because we had an incredible director this woman named emma griffin who's now the head of the opera program at ccm it's an incredible incredible opera director and theater as well and he didn't he also had like an incredible eye for casting because she cast the following people in this musical <sighs> molly hager brandon uranowitz john early sam pinkleton alice stroker uh shana taub like so <laughs> like she like she just knew from like the ca- when we did we're, we're, when we were auditioning like these are like superstars that like uh-huh. you need to have in this piece so like I remember seeing that yeah. reading with that cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just like, it was just such a magical experience for all of us because everybody, just like with my experience that I just had at UArts, like the like university students are just like so game to like jump into things and like, and they don't necessarily question and push back and they like are just like eager to like, do it and that and you don't always get that so that was really do you feel like you get a lot of pushback from professional actors oh my gosh when we did the lincoln center directors (laughs) lab (laughs) well part of that was like the design of the particular lab which is that the actors had like more agency to speak out okay and what ended up happening was that we had the people playing the adults in the in the musical and the people playing the kids in musical and the adult actors were so freaked out by the material that they like revolted. Oh, like huh. it was like a crazy process. Was that like a generational thing, or I think so. Oh, I see. Um, they just like couldn't bear to think of like how we were. They didn't. They really felt icky about how we were talking about uh, child sexuality uh-huh. in such adult ways and not like. And not sentimental ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that they just like, that made them really uncomfortable. It's such an awful feeling being in a, de- in a room in a developmental situation when you can tell right. your cast is not on board. Has that happened only, to you? I feel like I've had that experience once, not the whole cast, but where you just know members have the feeling of like, I don't get this show. Uh. For me, it's a lot of like, I don't get this this feels really difficult in a way that doesn't feel maybe worth it right oh it's awful because i feel like once you've written the thing like hopefully a director with the right cast can sort of get people on board if they're not on board but like as a writer it sort of feels like you can't really sell sell your thing anymore and you just just sit there and watch people but also but also like the other thing that i've actually started to really think about is and like think about now just because i think the world is in such a like polarized place is that like somebody like everybody walks into these experiences and in these rooms and these processes 
with a, a set of values and politics. Mm-hmm. And like, and I think that it's, and the thing that happens I find is they will project their stuff onto you and mm-hmm. not own that they are this. And this actually, I had a really powerful example of this happened recently at UArts where it, after the, my show that I was working on there was over, I, they invited me to come back up to talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. um, which are topics that I hate talking about. <laughs> and I gave a speech about how I hate talking about those topics and I talked about why that is. And like, but like, because I had just done the show, some people were able to talk about I saw your show and this is what I felt and one young woman who was a student there expressed that she had been offended by the show and but she also said and this is like the part that I found was really amazing was she was like but after hearing you talk about the issues that we're here to talk about Mm -hmm. I realized that I might just be more conservative than I thought and and so and that that so like and i was like oh my god thank you for saying that because there's nothing wrong with you being conservative but like it's really awesome that you know that or like learn that about yourself and that and that your reaction to my show is about you it's Mm -hmm. not about me Mm -hmm. and like and i don't and i don't and there's no rule that says that everyone has to like my show and, but like I think that we 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 act as though a lot of times in the conversations about art that everyone has to like everything, mm-hmm. and you oh. actually don't. And it's actually <laughs> important that everybody not like it. I'm not interested in consensus. Yeah. Wait, I was with you, and I didn't follow you on the last point. Why is it important that everyone not like it? Because if everybody likes it, what can you learn from that? Yeah. So do you think it's important that people who are not going to like it see it? Yes, I do. But I also think that those people need to make that choice for themselves. There are things that I'm like, I'm not watching Roseanne. <laughs> like, I'm not interested in, and not because I'm afraid to talk about conservative viewpoints. I actually think that Roseanne is not espousing conservatism. She's espousing a kind of what radical, uh, a kind of um, extremism that is fine if that's that's her point of view or whatever but i noticed that like there's capitalism is very interested in white extremism but it is not interested in black extremism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when black people do things that are extreme or radical or whatever or are shaking up you know white supremacy or patriarchy or whatever it's like be quiet don't do that stop kneeling don't interrupt traffic don't and no one goes, here, let's reboot a TV show for you. Right. Because really, this is why Trump won or whatever. Like, we weren't listening to you. No one ever says, we need to make this TV show, this Black Lives Matter TV show. Because, you know, like, and so, like, and I just noticed that. There's a platform for Milo Yiannopoulos, whatever his name, to speak. He's invited to be on news shows. He's invited to be on Real Time with Bill Maher. Richard Spencer is invited to... Cons- I'm, all, I'm always like... They're always like complaining about Antifa coming to like attack Richard Spencer at a college student. I'm like, who are all these colleges that are inviting him to speak? Why is he invited to speak everywhere? You never hear like some radical, like uh, black, black uh, African socialist mm-hmm. party person coming to speak at you know Berkeley or wherever. Right. Like they're not. Are they not invited? So anyway, so that's why I'm not watching Roseanne. <laughs> um, so, but like I think generally, I think it's people should like engage with like art that's going to be challenging to them and they should say, and they should critique it. 
Yeah. I mean, do you? I'm curious. I I think about someone was just um, making me think about the the people who like go see one show a year. Mm-hmm. I maybe that's this isn't the the group of people you're talking about, but like I was just thinking about that and like, um, are are they gonna seek out a show that they might find challenging? You know what I mean? Um, Maybe well, this isn't the group of people that you're talking I about. I mean, I don't know. Well, uh, what I can say about that is, like, for a brief spell, I uh, was an usher at some Disney shows <laughs> for a couple years. And then right after I got not invited back <laughs> after a certain period. <laughs> and then I worked on the street team for Rock of Ages for a summer. Uh-huh. And so that put me right on that little TKTS triangle. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was like right face to face with just like the purest form of Broadway tourist. Yeah. And the thing I learned then was that for some people going to see a show is it's like it's like going to a theme park. It's like going to a bar. Right. It's like it's just something. It's a diversion to pass the time right. on the way to something else. That and that they're not necessarily that interested on actually in what's happening on the stage. Huh. There's some people for whom that's not true. Some people are like they heard like they heard that you know Phantom was so great or whatever it, it is, um, and like and they just want to go. That's like their thing. But some people, it's like. It's just something to do. Which in a way makes me grateful because it's like regular people. It's like the people that you're right. afraid you won't hit at all. But I. But the thing that like worries me about it or used to worry about me about it was that like first a lo- those people going to the theater was like watching television. And so the theater that sometimes I think is created is catering to that. Mm-hmm. And that I find unfortunate because mm-hmm. I think theater is unique in that it's not like television. It's like, it's a communal experience. And um, if you want to watch television, you can literally take out your phone and watch television. But like to pay all that money to go sit in a theater, that's just like a TV show. Do you mean like a TV show in terms of how much you're sort of like actively engaging as you watch or? I mean, in terms of like what it's even asking of you Mm -hmm. that it's, that it's not, that it's just like flat and one dimensional that it's not and like easily digestible yeah th- and that like it's and that like there will be there might even be like take great pains to sand the edges off mm-hmm. of it or to like make sure that it's like you know reaffirming the value that you walked in with it mm. to the theater with but uh, that might also just be about my aesthetic of the kind of art that I like the thing that I want to go sit in a theater with. Like, I, I just feel like there have been so many times I've gone in the theater. I'm just kind of like, why am I here? Like I could, like, I'd rather just watch a video of this hmm. than like actually sit in the room with it. But that's, that's <laughs> me. Can I ask you a, a craft question? What's up? That I've been, <laughs> what's up? That I've been meaning to ask. I've been wanting to ask for a while because like having had, like a front row seat to the development of teeth for a little mm-hmm. while. I've just been so curious about, cause every, it felt like every time I came back to it, like 
it almost felt like the script had been like exploded and pieced back together a little bit, mm-hmm. which is not an experience I've necessarily had on every other show that I've witnessed right. stages of development. I'm just curious, like how you conceptualize like the rewriting process. Well, I mean, that one is like different because I'm working with a collaborator. Yeah. So it, usually we just, we sort of have to, we look at each draft and we see where it is that we're landing by the end and like the things that we still might have questions about. Um, and then we normally end up going back and re-outlining. And once we re-outline, that might mean that certain things that we've gotten really comfortable with have to change in like big ways. Yeah. Um, and sometimes not. So like, uh, I think that like in the last couple of the last, one or two incarnations we'd more or less remain the same and there's just been certain um moments throughout that we like had to adjust and then this sort of latest rewrite that we're going through now we're doing a bigger push just based on some feedback that we gotten from um some people close to us and also the underlying rights holder, the director of the film. Yeah. So like, we're just, it's a, it's a balancing act of sort of like figuring out what are our priorities Mm -hmm. and what, um, other feedback that we sort of have to listen to. But you feel really comfortable making those big changes when they come up. I mean, sometimes I want to jump out of the window, (laughs) but like, I think that I'm a good collaborator and that like, I will, that I'm a good listener and I can hear, if I understand why it is that we're making a change, mm-hmm. I'll let go with it. If I don't understand why we're making a change, I will say so. Cool. Yeah. And does that, so you said like, it depends on if you're working with a collaborator or, or just by yourself. Like how does that process differ when you're Well, I mean like working by myself, if I'm working by myself, it, it falls on me. Like I'm doing, I have to sort of, it falls on me. Yeah. Though I will say on a strange loop, I've been working with Steven for a while that he sort of is my collaborator. On yeah. That. So like he has a vested sort of interest in like the, where the story is headed, even though it's serving my vision. So like, will we, for example, like we moved, there's been like a song that we've taken in and out of the piece a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And there's been another song that we had be early in the piece and then we've had change it so it'll be late in the piece and like wherever it is changes sort of what it like the 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 impact that uh the song has and what the ending or the beginning of the piece has so like those are those are things that like we that like just having a collaborator um it's nice to have somebody able just to talk about that and to feel out what that feels like and sounds like but then, but there's also like, if I'm working by myself, uh, you know, it's just me sort of the architect going like, how is this house going to be built and what furniture am I putting in it? Yeah. It's funny because I'm so lazy. My favorite kind of change is when you figure out that like somehow reordering material or repositioning can have this big impactful change. Right. It feels like such a great And I shortcut. feel like with you and Gordon, my image is y'all like i feel like y'all are real good with like the colored index cards oh that's all gordon that's yeah. gordon's thing and like i'm like i tried doing things like that and i i don't my brain just doesn't 
want to be that orderly. Huh. I'm just not good at. I'm a, I'm a very like I'm on my own. I'm much more instinctual. Yeah. And I just sort of have to like Jackson Pollock my way through it, <laughs> and then like reorder it and put it back together and try other things. I wonder know? if in a way it, if the fact that you do it that way gives you more freedom too, as you were saying, like explode the whole thing because. It, if your mental like image of the whole thing is more fluid. I mean, I will say, I think it's easier to do it that way by yourself than with someone else, because mm. with yeah. someone else, both of you have different versions mm-hmm, of that. Mm-hmm. And like, you can't, it's not like you can, you can collaborate, but you can't always get to exactly the same brain. Yeah. And that so like, it's always, it's always like hard to feel like, are we actually seeing the same thing? Right. And so that for me is where collaboration comes in because like if there's something that Anna is seeing that I don't see, I might just try to like adjust to like follow what it is that she's seen and but also keeping in mind the things that I don't understand. Yeah. As opposed to like trying to like do both like trying to go in another direction and her direction at the same time. Mm. I like will like all right i'm gonna follow what you're doing or what you are thinking but then i'm gonna like pull back when i like go whoa 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 whoa, i don't get that yeah mm-hmm. and similarly i think her to me like yeah. if i go too far in this direction that she's following me then she can pull back right so it's just this constant like dual horse riding huh. thing is how i guess i would describe it but yeah, the by myself, yeah, I can just like, <laughs> it's all me. I throw it up on the wall. I can take it off the wall. Like, but so I'm not, but I'm not good with the storyboarding. Except hmm. White Girl in Danger actually forced my other show I'm working on, actually forced me to do the storyboarding a little bit more because huh. of the subject, the the um, the underlying sort of structure of it mm-hmm. that I was like borrowing from. You mean the sort of like the TV trope stuff? Yeah, and the like it actually, stuff? like the odd thing about Wanger on Danger, my other show, is that it is essentially in a movie structure. Mm. Like even down to like the page numbers. Like it's the first act is about 30 pages. Huh. The second act, even though it's, it's still in two act structure, right, but right. like the first act is about 30 pages. The second act, which is still part of the first act, is about 60. And then the third act is like. Well, it's a little longer than it should be, but um, <laughs> it, it it's like a essentially a three act structure movie structure in a two act musical. Interesting. And was that intentional, or did you sort of notice that somewhere along the line? I figured it out along the lines nice. because I saw where the major sort of dramatic question was being. The major dramatic question happens right at the end of Act One, mm-hmm. and then and that the was air quotes Act One, not musical Act right. One. Right, and then the sort of big. Um, exclamation point sort of it act happens at the end of act two and then the sort of climax happens in act three so that was but it was and that was really exciting to me because it it also just allowed me to play with the form that the whole piece itself was already sort of commenting on mm, yeah 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 so that that one's been really fun. It's hard and it's cr- it's a crazy show, but it's exciting. Yeah, I remember I saw it like I think the very first workshop when it was still sort of um, 
there was sort of, sort of like an outline being presented. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. even that outline was just crazy yeah, and yeah. fun. <laughs> and it amazing. got even more bananas after that. I'm sure it did. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to see a fuller version. Me too. Somebody give us some money. For anybody listening who has a lot of money. It's so it's super fun. It's based on Lifetime original movies from the nineties, but also soap operas generally. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was surprised with how many of the sort of references rang really true to me, having not really consciously watched any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's like all. It's like all like we wanted to like I wanted to have everything but the kitchen sink in it in terms of that like, it's, you know, it's, another nasty but danger. But it's also Law and Order or SVU. And mm-hmm. it's also All My Children. It's also Scandal. It's also How to Go with Murder. It's also, you know, just all of that stuff. It's also like TV theme songs. It's also it's all those things. Why did you want to um, take all those things and put them in a show? Like, where did the show come from, I guess? Um, well, it came from, like, just a joke that I had had when I was a grad student. Um, where I just as a joke, I was like, what if I wrote a show called Wanger on Danger? And the theme song was, white girl in danger. She's doing drugs, but she won't do her homework, you know? Because <laughs> it's also, like, after school specially. Yeah. And, like, and the real idea of it sort of came when I just started to think about the people talking about the thing that I hate talking about, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, like, representation and, like, colorblind casting. And, like... I just start to think about all of the images of like black people in in musicals that I s- had seen over the years, and then, uh, but also just in media, and like, I just, and then I start to think about these Lifetime movies, and, the th- and I just noticed that none of those movies ever had black women as like the protagonist. Uh-huh. And I just start to wonder about why is that, and like, just the more I start to ask myself all these questions about representation suddenly this like weird idea of like what if i smash together all these lifetime movie sort of storylines trope storylines and soap opera storylines like and put a black girl and her mother at the center of it what would happen and just the more i did that like the more out of control it got and then it just it allowed me especially once i realized that i wanted to put the piece in the world of that not like at first it started off when I first started writing it it was a girl was watching that and then that sort of sort of happened around her uh-huh. and I was like no I actually want to go inside the world of it because then all of the ridiculous rules all the ridiculous sort of aesthetics of that world could become the reality that we're watching the whole time so like have you ever, you know the thing of like how you always know that a girl is being abused in a movie when she says oh I just ran into a door right like I wanted to enter the the reality of that, the mm-hmm. aesthetic reality of that because there's something to me hilarious about the fact that like a character can say that and no one will disbelieve her. Right. So, and just playing with those sorts of tropes yeah. was like really fun for me. Yeah. Because I and I also knew them so well because I grew up on soap operas. Like, yeah. Um, and so I had like a very deep connection to that form. Uh huh. Um, and I actually came to New York wanting to be a soap opera writer. Really? Wow. I did. That was like what I wanted to do. Um, and I interned at all soaps except How? one semester. Um, and I like I would like that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like a head writer for like One Night to Live or something. So you did you still want to do that? 
What? Do you still want to do that? Well, no, because the industry sort of started to has started to die, but also it also started to change. Yeah. It's not even those shows that are still on are not the show. They're not the same as when I was growing up on them. They mm. they sort of started to they started to so be interested in our world mm-hmm. that like the fun of them went away and there was mm. some and that's actually i probably to their credit in some ways because a lot of the stories if you go back that like the soaps tell are like would not be able to pass muster in this political climate sure particularly around like sexual assault mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the need to movement and everything so but like but the sort of grand guignol like the bigness the the camp of it that mm-hmm. they were able to do in the like 70s 80s and 90s yeah was like like all i like i just was so into it so do you have a bunch of like spec soap scripts in your job <laughs> no because what happened was like i so i did an internship at all my children in the production office when i was in, in 2002 and then i did another internship at adc daytime in the network office like the next semester and then i got after i graduated i got this really cool job as a part of a abc daytime focus group Ooh. where you just got to watch the shows every day Whoa. and like and just give your opinions on that's them. awesome and then after that i um applied for a job at cbs daytime to be an executive assistant to like the VP of programming or something like that. But I didn't get that job, but then I got into grad school. Mm. Um, and then like after that, it was like suddenly like my life just went in a different direction. And then all the shows started getting canceled in New York. There's like mm. no, there's now there's no ADC daytime shows left in New York at all. Wow. They all are in LA. So it, I, I never got to the, I never got the opportunity to even like try to be a spec writer or anything like, or be a staff writer or anything like that. So you, are you ever tempted by the siren song of like other TV writers rooms? Um, I, I'm not to be honest because I, I have a bunch of friends who write for TV mm-hmm. and it's lucrative, but it's also like it in a lot of ways it to me, it feels like day jobby. Mm-hmm. in a certain way and like you lose a lot of autonomy yeah and like it it's funny because i actually think i might be good at it because it's very collaborative mm-hmm. and i'm like used to collaborating on ideas but i'm also like there's no tv shows on right now that i'm just like oh my god i just have to be in that writer's room mm. the real I'm housewives much, writer's room <laughs> right well there that's a whole other thing but like <laughs> like for example like i wouldn't hate to be in the i think i would hate to be in the writer's room at scandal Hmm. Like like having to create stories for that would drive me bananas. That's so interesting though, because to me, and having not watched much of Scandal but a little bit, it feels a lot like a, what I think of as a soap opera. It is, and yet, it it's not. It's very. It's also very corporate, mm-hmm. and not. It's not really transgressive in the way that I am interested in, right. which is why I like. I love working on White Girl in Danger. Because I get to formally write a soap opera, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But content-wise, I get to put all kinds of sort of really challenging things in there that would never be on TV. Right. I feel like that's a subversion of most people's expectations of, you know, musicals are going to paint in these very broad strokes right. and not be challenging. Like no, and my thing is I actually think that mi- the because you're bringing music in that you can do anything. Like you, Like, that's why I love the forum so much because you can do anything. You mm-hmm. can absolutely do anything. <laughs> and like, and what I am excited, ab- the potentially excited about in White Girl in Danger is that I am very specifically using pop musical forms to do it. Mm-hmm. And that music is the thing that can be a Trojan horse hmm. for all kinds of ideas mm-hmm. because yeah. it's just pop music. It's just like pop, pop, Taylor Swifty sounding <laughs> pop music or whatever. And but in within that, there's like all kinds of subvert, like subversive ideas, and okay. that's the the idea that I could if that that could ever be produced maybe, <laughs> and like given a platform is like really thrilling to me because you can like go and have a good time. Like it's why one of the reasons why I love cabaret so much the the the, the musical because it has like you can enjoy it on three levels. Yeah. And I sort of want White Girl in Danger to be the same way if I can. Yeah. That's amazing. I definitely do think that, yeah, having the music that is so fun, and even just the fact that that show is so funny, it does feel like it makes people more receptive to the other things you're saying. Yeah. Because, like, it... It's a, it's a very... It's an explicitly pro-black musical, which I don't... Like, I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but, like, it is explicit about it. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it says it, like, the last song of the piece is, like, Bam! This <laughs> like this specific thing, mm-hmm. um, which some people might say is didactic, but I don't care. Like it's like that's what yeah. it is, and like and I and to me, that's where I am right now in the world. I think it's very important. I'm always telling people, say what you mean, and mean what you say. Yeah. I don't mind ambiguity, but I also think there's great power in just saying what you mean, mm-hmm. and like and not making any bones about it. Um, when you've been developing that show, has anyone sort of tried to steer you away from that, or do people usually get it? No, I think I think people get it. I mean, to be, I mean to be fair, like I'm still in a first draft, so like there's a lot of things that I have to still think about. But I don't think the aspect of it that is just like clearly saying what it, what the message of it is. No one has been like, you can't say that. Good. And I'm, and even if they do, I'm like, fuck you, I'm saying it. So. <laughs> 